I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Hey folks, this is Kevin. We have a very special episode of Risk for you today. But before that, I have to let you know that Risk is brought to you in part by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform. Squarespace sites look beautiful, professionally designed, regardless of your skill level, with no coding required. You can start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. You use the offer code RISK, that's risk, to get 10% off your first purchase, Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Risk is also brought to you this week by Casper at Casper.com, where you get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting Casper.com slash risk and using the promo code risk. These Casper mattresses are obsessively engineered at a shockingly reasonable price. They've got just the right sink, just the right bounce. They use two technologies to get these Casper mattresses just right, latex foam and memory foam coming together for just the perfect fit. This is a risk-free trial with a return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. They're made in America. This is $500 for a twin-sized mattress and $950 for a king-sized mattress. You go to the store, you'd be paying $1,500 for that kind of a mattress. And right now, you get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash risk and using the promo code RISK. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is my great ghost behind me now doing a remix of Philip Glass that's sort of a foreshadowing of the music coming up in this, our 250th episode. It is such a miracle and such a blessing that we have lasted for 250 episodes. And so today we're celebrating with an episode that we are so very proud of. Let me tell you what the past few days have been like. JC, my producer, and I went to Washington, D.C. and Philly to do a couple of Risk Live shows. During that time, I was struck by vertigo, meaning uh, crazy dizziness, crazy nausea, inability to walk in a straight line, exhaustion, vomiting, having as much Dramamine and marijuana as I could stand over the weekend just to make it through it all. I was almost to four months without any marijuana, but uh, had to take a little bit of break from the fast there uh, just to deal with the vertigo. Meanwhile, over Skype and telephone, my editor Jeff Barr and myself were editing this episode. So whenever I wasn't vomiting or napping or preparing a storyteller for one of the live shows, I was delving deep into this extremely emotional story. Now, Risk gets compared all the time to storytelling shows that are on NPR, stuff like The Moth or This American Life or Snap Judgment. Those shows have huge budgets and huge staffs and crazy marketing reach. It's important for you to remember that when you listen to Risk, you're listening to a show that is made by a few people who are working for barely any money and with barely any money and and just consistently putting out a show that gets so much less attention than the big corporate ones. And to make it happen 250 times since October 6th of 2009 is the thing that I am proudest of. I am so thankful that in 2009, just before I turned 40, I finally found a labor of love that that works, that, that re- the way that you folks have responded to the show so far, and the way that the storytellers, like today's storyteller, Marcy Langlois, have just poured heart and soul into this project. We've all put so much into it. Just listening to the show involves so much heart and soul. And so I'm so very thankful for all of us. It was a Risk fan who reached out to Marcy Langlois and said, Marcy, you should pitch this story to Risk because as real and raw as it is, Risk is the show that goes there completely, not just a little. And I do have to warn everyone that this story features some violent trauma. It's a heavy one, but one that is so, so worth sharing with other people in your life. Remember, I always recommend that you use headphones when you listen to the radio style stories because Jeff Barr's sound design 
is so extraordinary in its nuance. And so without further ado, here she is now. This is Marcy Langlois with a story we call Surrender. grew up in a trailer and at times we had no running water we didn't have money for anything really just the bare necessities and uh, sometimes not even those my mom was only 19 when I was born and my father was 25 and had a very significant drinking problem you know in addition to all of that I was born the way I was born, with this cleft lip and palate and all these medical needs due to the complications that come along with a cleft lip and palate. My mom fed me with an eyedropper because I didn't have the ability to suck. My mom had to feed me about every 20 to 30 minutes. I think back about that and what that must have been like to be my mom. 19 years old and have this baby and already had another one, my brother was, 19 months older than me, Mark. And he was busy and he was active and my father drinking and not being very present at all with us. And then never having enough money, going to the local grocer to ask if she could, you know, run a tab to provide food for us. I ended up having about nine major surgeries that consisted of many procedures throughout those surgeries. They took a bone out of my hip and put it in my jaw. They pulled all four of my wisdom teeth that were impacted. They put plates and screws in my upper jaw, trying to expand that and get that ready to be broken. They took the tubes out of my ears. And that was all just one surgery. I think I was under anesthesia that time for probably about eight hours. That's how they all looked. It was always a team of doctors that would operate on me at one time. It was never ending. I was always at the doctors, and if I wasn't at the doctors, I was at the orthodontist, and if I wasn't at the orthodontist, then I was at the speech pathologist, and if I wasn't there, then I was at the ear, nose, throat specialist. You know, I looked very different than I look today. I had an 11 millimeter underbite, three front teeth, and braces on my teeth when I was in kindergarten, and I didn't get them off until I was a senior in high school, and people, not just children, but people had no problem reflecting that back to me and letting me know that I looked different, that I was different, that I spoke differently and I sounded differently. Going to school and being around these children, picking on me and making fun of me, I always felt less than and not good enough. The way that I found to compensate for that was by just outdoing everybody at everything. Running the fastest, being the best basketball player, being the smartest, being the funniest, anything to distract from the way that I looked. 
it created this idea in my mind that I needed to be perfect, that if I was perfect, then people would like me. And additionally, I discovered that I was really attracted to girls instead of boys at a very young age. I can remember sitting in the, the Catholic school that I attended, being very certain that I, I liked girls instead of boys. So not only was I battling that I looked different on the outside and that stuff, I was also battling this whole thing about, oh great, now I like girls? You gotta be kidding me. This intense self-hatred was very present. I hated the way I looked. I rarely looked at myself in the mirror, if ever. I hated that I was attracted to girls. I hated that my dad was an alcoholic. I hated that we were poor. I hated all of it. And to make matters worse, one night, when I was like in kindergarten or first grade, something happened that was so disturbing to me. It remained blocked in my memory for decades. I was only six or seven. And then that particular night, my parents were trying out a new babysitter, a man. My parents went out for the night. And I remember it all so well now. I woke up and my yellow footed pajamas were unzipped. I was on my back and my panties were pulled to the side and the light was on in my bedroom. But that guy wasn't in my bedroom, he was in the bathroom and I could hear him because it was just on the other side of the wall. I don't know what he was doing in the bathroom but I heard water running and then I heard the light click off in the bathroom. So I closed my eyes and I lied there. And I pretended I was asleep because I didn't know what else to do. And he fondled me some. And then he zipped up my pajamas and he walked out of my bedroom and he turned the light off as he left. I never told anyone about that. So that's kind of how it all started out. You know, these surgeries, these orthodontist, crazy drunk in our house coming home at three o'clock in the morning and throwing all of our stuff out on the front lawn and telling us to get out and then making me and my brother choose if we're going to stay with my mom or go with him. That's what was going on in the first five, six, seven years of my life. And is a wild start for sure. In middle school, I started fooling around with drinking and smoking and any way to check out of myself, any way to get rid of the self-hatred that I so intensely felt. I didn't really uh, live in my body. I lived next to my body because it was so painful to be who I was. 
And so, you know, alcohol became such an amazing tool for me. I drank for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to get drunk and uh, stop living inside of this body and this mind that told me that you're a piece of shit, Marcy. You're no good. You know, you don't deserve anything good. Look at you. Who would ever love you? Who would ever want you? These are the things that my mind told myself constantly. And so the alcohol would quiet that. I just wanted to be a kid, you know? I wanted to have fun. I wanted to party with my friends. I wanted to play sports. I wanted to be a youth, but I wasn't. You know, I was at the doctors, I was sick. And when I did feel good, I really made up for last time. I'd party more, I'd drink more, smoke more pot, eat mushrooms, whatever it was. But those things were social lubricants for me. They were helping me make friends as I saw it. In the last couple of years of high school, I felt like I was really starting to turn the corner and starting to leave all of the pain from my childhood behind me. When I was 17, I had my final surgery and I felt like I was really entering this whole new life. I started to kind of get it together. I could move on with my life. I could have different options, different choices. It felt different for me. I felt kind of like a sigh of relief. It was January 31st, 1994, and it was a really cold day in Vermont. I was getting ready to go to work to my after-school job, and my mom suggested that I take their car instead of my car, which was a Volkswagen Bug, because it had heat. So I got in the car, and her car had a tape deck, which was super awesome, so I got to listen to the music I wanted to listen to. Drove downtown, which is just a short commute, maybe about seven or eight minutes. I was early for work, but I pulled in anyway, and as I was sitting there, a song came on that I wanted to listen to. And I remember sitting there thinking, well, I only have like five minutes, even though it's only like two city blocks to the other end of town. And then I'm like, no, I need to go. Like, there was something that was drawing me to go to the other end of town. Like, I was going to see a friend of mine or something. It was like, you need to go. Marcy, you need to go to the other end of town is what's going on in my subconscious mind. So I went. I pulled back out, and I drove the length of the town. And I turned around at the other end of town at the American Legion. And as I'm heading back through town, I'm speeding a little bit. I start to enter the busy part of town, which is where my grandparents' diner is and the fire station, and I can see some of my grandparents' regulars, Venus and Carol Harvey, are on the side of the street. And so I start downshifting, and I notice as I'm looking ahead that this car is pulled out from the sidewalk in front of my grandparents' diner, and it's just trying to come across my lane of traffic. I see him, I'm aware, I'm very aware that he is there. And I start doing this deductive reasoning that happened really, really fast. I I keep downshifting, I'm going through the gears. 
I recognize that he does not see me because he keeps coming towards me. He's not stopping. He's not swerving. He's not doing anything. He just, he, he keeps coming in the same direction that my car is traveling. And so I'm acutely aware that he does not see me. And I was going to go right to try to avoid his car. And I was totally willing to hit the old brick fire station and run my car right into it. This all happened within seconds. There was nowhere for me to go because he kept moving towards the brick fire station and I couldn't go any further to the right and there was oncoming traffic in the left-hand lane. And then I hit his car broadside and my car spun several times. And as I'm walking over to the car, I'm just screaming. My whole body feels like an electrical wire is on. I can't tell if this is a dream or if this is actually real. I walk over to their car and I'm standing in front of the car. And it's awful. There's smoke coming out of the hood. There's smashed glass everywhere. There's blood everywhere. You can smell the rubber from the tires trying to stop. And the whole time, all I'm doing is standing in front of the driver's side door, screaming, looking inside and saying, what, what has happened? What is this? This has to be a dream. This can't be real. I don't know if I was saying them out loud or in my head. I have no idea. And I'm just standing there surveying the damage that was done. The driver is an old man. He was okay. He had some cuts and bruises and basically in shock. The woman that was sitting in the front seat, her neck was bent over to the side. Her head was on her shoulder. I had no idea if she was okay. But it did not appear that she was coherent. And then I looked in the back seat and it just got worse. The two women in the back seat, Their top half of their bodies had slid toward one another and so they were like resting shoulder to shoulder. And the woman that was sitting behind the driver's seat, her head was resting on that woman's shoulder and her eyes were open. And I felt as though she was looking at me and saying, what have you done to us? And that has haunted me almost every single day since that day. I just, uh, it was so overwhelming. My aunt and uncle came out from the restaurant, my grandparents' restaurant, and they were trying to get me to go inside. I just was 
crazy, hysterical, maniacal, overwhelming. Could not, for the life of me, calm myself down. Could not bring myself back into my body, into reality. I wanted to know if these people were okay. And no one could tell me. And so they brought me through the restaurant, screaming at the top of my lungs, making this huge scene. It was right at dinner time, so there was lots of people in there. I I couldn't stop talking long enough to listen because I just was so outside of my own mind. They wanted me to go to the hospital in an ambulance and I didn't want to go and I kept saying that until all the other people go, am I going? I eventually got in the ambulance and went and I kept asking the whole time on the way to the hospital was, are these people okay? Are they okay? Are they okay? And basically nobody could tell me what was going on. And so as we're getting ready to leave the hospital, the nurse comes in to you know, go over all the instructions and paperwork with me, and she's telling us when there's an accident like this, it's normal to, you know, be upset and maybe have trouble sleeping and have some anxiety. But it is even worse when there are people that die. And I said, what do you mean when people die? I looked at my mom and my mom said to the nurse, we weren't going to tell her until we got her home. It was so overwhelming. There are no words to have that feeling of being responsible for taking someone's life. And that was just the beginning because then I found out that it wasn't just one woman. It was two women that had passed away. And the shame and the guilt were so immense. I went to bed that night and I don't know if I slept at all. And the plan was that I was going to go to school in the morning and pick up some work. My mom was going to pick me up from school. And we were going to go to the hospital and we were going to see the woman that was hanging on. And for some reason, I felt like if this woman lived, that that was going to give me relief or something. I I don't really know. But somehow, I really had hung on to the hope that this woman was going to live. I came out of school. My mom helped open the door. The first thing I said to my mom was, how is she? Do you have an update, mom? She just looked at me. And I knew, I knew. And she said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Marcy. 
And that was the end of me. And I was so distraught. And I was so angry. I was so angry at myself, at this God that they had taught me to believe in, at the other guy that had pulled out in front of me. I was so angry that these three people had died and that I killed them. And my life never has looked the same. So I found out where one of the women was buried and I would sit at this woman's headstone and I would scream at the top of my lungs and ask her to forgive me, to give me a sign that I was forgiven, that I deserved to be alive. And I would tell her how sorry I was and how sorry I was for her family that no longer had their mom or their grandmother. I would go there almost every day and I would sit at that gravestone for hours. It was time to go to college and I didn't want to go because all I wanted to do was die. I wanted to die every day. I hated myself so much. I already hated myself before this accident happened. So now imagine piling on the responsibility of killing three people. So all I did was drink and drug daily. I mean, whatever I could get in my body, I would. I was trying to kill myself without pulling the trigger. But I went for six weeks and I never attended one single class and called my mom and said, mom, if you don't, come and get me, I'm gonna kill myself. Like, I can't be here. Like, literally, I cannot be here, I can't function. My mom said she would come and get me only if I would leave Vermont. That I had to do something different with my life because that if I stayed there, I would never make it. And she was right. The town I lived in, I'd have to drive by the scene of the accident to go anywhere. So I agreed. I got a couple of jobs and then left. And continued that road of addiction all around the country, trying to outrun myself, really, hoping that I'd be somebody different when I got somewhere new and hoping that I would leave the past in the past. But it was four years of a lawsuit and trial because of the deaths, and I was going to leave Florida and uh, move to Alaska. And on my way to Alaska, I stopped in Colorado, and when I got here, I had a friend, and her name was Tracy, and we have been friends for several years, and there was always this connection between us, and she had a little girl named Brianna. We moved in together, and 
she had a daughter. And so I had to make some choices. I couldn't stop drinking no matter what. I drink all day, every day. I go to work and leave work and go do shots at the bar and go back to work. And I could not stop drinking. I, I could not. I would tell myself in the morning, I'm not going to drink today no matter what happens. And I'd be drunk by noon. And I had picked Brianna up from school one day and she was talking about her day. And I had been drinking already, of course, because that was like three o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm driving and I'm actually going back to the bar with her. I realized, Marcy, you are not listening to her at all. I don't even think you care what she's saying. And then the next thought comes in, this is exactly what your dad did to you. This right here. I swore I'd never be like my dad. I swore if I ever had kids that I would show up in their life and participate and not be drunk and here I was doing this to Brianna so I decided to attend my first 12-step meeting on that day and thank God I haven't had to have a drink since that day and what ended up occurring from there was just a lot of work on my part you know for the first five years I just stayed sober and went to a lot of meetings and didn't drink but then my body physically started manifesting all of this stuff and I got really sick and I had a sinus infection for years. Started having heart palpitations and I had psoriasis all over my legs and my arms and had like probably seven, eight, nine anxiety attacks a day. I stopped sleeping and the list was endless and it was seemingly all unrelated and the western doctors couldn't figure it out so I finally went to a naturopathic doctor and she just told me you know you have to address the trauma that you've gone through in your life and unless you do that this physical stuff is just going to get worse I started seeing a therapist two to three times a week and my wife was also helping me to stay sober along the way I was able to keep the driver from the other car from going to jail. He was 78 years old and he probably shouldn't have ever been driving that day. But I know that he suffered just like I had. So I contacted the state's attorney in our area and requested that rather than any legal action be taken against him, that his license just be permanently revoked. Then one day, about two years into my therapy and about seven years into my sobriety and about 15 years after the accident itself, I had a major breakthrough. My therapist had me repeat after her. I was driving down the road and I hit this car and it was an accident. And she had me repeat that over and over and over. On my own, I started saying, I didn't kill them. I didn't kill them. I did not kill them. Over and over. And she kept affirming that I didn't. And then all of these emotions and feelings and memories came up for me. And then she told me that we were going to hand this over 
that we were going to give it to the power that was greater than me because it was too big for me to carry anymore and that I didn't have to do it. At that very moment, I felt like the spirit of the universe had touched me. And I cried like I'd never cried before. It was so unbelievably powerful and so freeing. I don't know that I've ever been so vulnerable as I was in that moment. That I was so willing to let it go, to give it up, to know somewhere deep inside of me that I didn't deserve to carry it anymore was so profound and powerful. That was the moment that the healing began. It opened my heart. And who it opened my heart for was me. Was me. Which is so powerful. I have been caught up for so long in the shame and the guilt that I had felt, but I had never taken stock or inventory of what I had lost. And so when I was able to finally look at my own pain, that's when I turned the corner. I am healing. It is a continuous process. I think the day that I arrive is the day that I, I will die, that I will leave this plane of existence. That's when I will be free. But until then, it's this journey of healing that I continue on. But it's one of the most impactful, profound days of my life, was that day. I came to this world to learn, and the only way I can learn is through experience. And the biggest lesson, I believe, for all human beings is to learn to love ourselves unconditionally. And when you're a lesbian in a Catholic family and in a Catholic school, and when the world tells you that you're a piece of garbage because you don't look like everybody else, and when you believe you killed three people, to love yourself unconditionally seems like a pretty tall order. But when I had this change to know that I did not kill these people, then that allowed me to have a different understanding of this term called spirituality. You know, for me, it's being quiet and getting connected to something, something that's greater than myself and that knowing that I'm a part of that, that I come from it, that I'm a part of it, and that I return to it, as I believe all human beings do. That's today what keeps me going. That's, that's how I live, that's how I function, that's how I get through every day, how I get up, because it gives me a purpose. It gives me a moral compass of who I need to be. 
just because all of these things that happened to me, that's not who I am. That just happened to me. It's just my experience, right? So what am I going to do with it? It's my choice of what I'm going to do with it. I can lay in bed and feel sorry for myself and beat myself up like I did, or I can turn it around and look at it from a different perspective and do something with it, help other people, inspire other people, let people know that we are all the same, that we all struggle. That's what I choose to do. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Iron and Wine behind me now. And you can find our extraordinary storyteller from today, Marcy Langlois, at marcylanglois.com. That's M-A-R-C-Y-L-A-N-G-L-O-I-S.com. Folks, we have a bunch of big tour dates coming. I'm going to get to the doctor before then and see if we can... Avoid any more vertigo. Uh, We've got Portland shows, Seattle shows, Toronto, Denver, and Milwaukee coming up. And we need pitches for all those shows. Portland is September 22nd and 23rd. The themes are Bewildered and Furious. Seattle is September 24th and 25th. Again, the themes are Bewildered and Furious. Toronto is October 9th. The theme is goddamn. Denver is October 14th. The theme is help. And Milwaukee is on November 14th. The theme that night is fuck this. You can always find information on getting tickets to Risk Live shows at risk-show.com slash tour. And you can pitch us your stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. If you love what we do here on Risk and you realize how really no one else does it quite like we do, remember we rely very heavily on listener support. We are a part of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts and you can donate by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate and become a member or make a one-time contribution. Just be sure to earmark it for Risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>